in fact, before I forget, I'm going to start recording now. Um, and, uh, and the intention of that is we're just going to use the audio um, from, from this to be able to make available to people who can't be um, here tonight. So um, just to make you aware of that, I won't be um, using everyone's images um, uh, from this, but we will we'll be putting a recording of, um, of our session tonight on the website. So if you've got any issues with that, then firstly, probably your, your first wisest thing is to keep stum. Um, but uh, but also, um, if you'd like me to cut anything out of that, then do um, do let me know as well if there's anything particularly that comes up. Um, I think Peter's uh, the plan is to go sort of 10, 15 minutes at a time and then to pause for any questions or any comments that anyone's got. So um, if you do have questions sort of throughout the um, throughout the evening, then I just encourage you to use um, the chat function if you'd like to just to, to send a question through and. Um, you know, every um, 50 minutes or so, we can we can just sort of pause to reflect on any of those questions, or you can ask them uh, live uh, if you'd like to as well. And uh, and after the session, Peter's got some notes that we'll share uh, as well. So um, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Peter, but I'll just say a quick prayer as we start our evening together. Yeah, Father, it's um it's our heart's desire to. Um, to have an encounter with Jesus um, this Easter time. And as we lead up to, um, to Easter, where we, we remember um, not only your death, but your, your resurrection and the, the wonder of um, new resurrected life in you. Um, I pray this evening, Lord, as we, um, as we uh, spend this time together, um, opening your word, reflecting on you. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, that that would be a, a significant time for us, that our eyes would be opened, that our, our ears would be receptive um, this evening to, to what you've got to say to each one of us and I pray for Peter tonight as he shares I just pray now that you anoint his his lips um, and his mind Lord just to um, to share the things that um, that you've put on his, his heart this evening that would inspire us um, but most importantly Lord that would leave us um, in a place where we're open and receptive to your spirit and what you're doing uh, in amongst us as your community I pray in Jesus name Amen. 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 Over to you, Peter. Well, thank you so much for that very flattering um, um, introduction, Sam. That, that's great. I'm, I'm actually retired from the Baptist College, though I'm still doing quite a bit of teaching for them, as it happens, um, on sort of block weeks. So uh, that's, that's quite nice. Uh, and also some for Trinity, too, in the same way. So, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm, we've got an hour, I think. Is that right, roughly? Good. So if we sort of three 15 minute blocks or so with conversations in between, um, I hope. Um, I'll, um, I'll make those notes, as I said, available for what worth. Right, well, um, I want you just to imagine for a, a moment that you were a um, pagan scholar browsing in the great uh, library in Alexandria in Egypt, one of the great, if not the greatest, centers of learning in the ancient world, say about 125 AD, 100 years or so after the death of Jesus. And you were sort of browsing in the sort of exotic foreign texts section, question probably dodgy question, and you opened a scroll or it may even be the small book, but let's say for an argument, a scroll, which was labelled John's Gospel. Now, what would you make of it? You might be puzzled by the word gospel, but 
um, you plow on and you think the first words, well, these are quite interesting. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, our imaginary uh, pagan scholar might have nodded at this point, sagely in agreement, particularly if they were the sort of pagan who was influenced, as many were, by um, a broad way of thinking in the ancient world that um, we might call Stoicism. For the Stoics believed that all the universe was a great divine being, um, called pantheism. God is everything. But they believed this divine cosmos had a soul. And they called that world soul the word, or in, in Greek, the logos. And this is the word that's used at the beginning of John's gospel. So our friend would have thought that they were on familiar ground. And as they read on, this impression might strengthen. Uh, for in this sort of stoic way of thinking, it wasn't too off the wall to hear that this logos was also a light shining in the darkness, which might enlighten human beings. One of the things Stoics believed was that we should get in line with the logos of the cosmos, live in its truth. And the notion of someone witnessing to the logos or even believing in it was fine. That's what philosophers were supposed to do after all. And these are the sort of things that this introduction to the gospel goes on to say. However, our pagan friend might scratch their head when they were told that, um, as Sam read for us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Indeed, they would really stumbled over that phrase because what it says literally in, in the Greek was not just that the word became flesh, and our Stoic friend would find it quite difficult to get his head round or their head round the notion that the world's soul could, as it were, concentrate itself in one fleshy body, or that it would want to get stuck in such messy stuff anyway. But then, dwelt among us isn't quite right, because what it says literally is this. The word pitched his tent among us. I mean, camping? Soldiers on campaign and rather poor travellers who couldn't afford a decent inn might pitch tents. But the very soul of the universe? What is going on here? Still, uh, we might hope that our friend might have been intrigued enough to carry on to discover what all this meant. And who knows, as he read, or they read, could we she might have found an encounter in this text with a, a Jewish teacher called Jesus, who made some extraordinary claims about himself, did some astonishing things, and then, and this is, would have been really odd, was executed as a public danger, threat by the authorities, religious and military, civil, but was then raised again by God in a way that vindicated his claims. And who knows, they might have found their encounter with this Jesus as they read, this word made flesh, not only intriguing, 
but transformative. Well, let's imagine another reader in that ancient library. Not a pagan now, but a Jew. About third to a quarter of the population of Alexandria was Jewish. And we know they use the library. Perhaps, perhaps a Jew or, or perhaps one of those they called God-fearers. That is someone from a non-Jewish background, but attracted to Judaism. Someone at any rate who knew very well what we call the Old Testament, but they would have just called the scriptures. Now, such a reader would also have been intrigued by the gospel's first words, but they would have perhaps picked up a lot more of what this scroll was really trying to say. For those first words, in the beginning, would have reminded them of the first words in the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, because they're actually identical in, in the Greek version of the Old Testament and in John's gospel. In the beginning. And then Genesis goes on to say, God created the heavens and the earth. So such a reader, knowing the scriptures, would have realized that the God of this funny little scroll in their hands was almost certainly not going to be the Stoics God who is the universe, but the Bible's transcendent other creator God who made the universe, but isn't the same as it. Moreover, when it went on to say that in the beginning was the word, it's funny scroll, Someone who knew Genesis would remember that this transcendent creator God's spirit had hovered over the watery chaos of the beginning and then had created, not by a deed, an action, but by a word. And God said, let there be light. So in, in Genesis, the word is creative. And so our, our, our scripturally informed reader would have supposed that this was a book about creation, or perhaps given the mess it seemed creation is in at the moment, about a new creation, a recreation. Indeed, what the gospel goes on to say about everything being made through this word and the word bringing light and giving life. Again, words that would jump off the page from the first chapter of Genesis would make them think they were on the right track. However, although this devout Jewish or God-fearing reader might have been as puzzled as our imaginary pagan, and like them a bit repelled perhaps, by the idea that this creative word from God might have become flesh, they would also understand far better than the pagan reader what it might mean for this word to pitch their tent among us. For the word used for this camping trip was the same word used in the Greek version 
of other biblical books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, for instance, for a particular sort of tent, for the tabernacle, the holy tent pitched by the people of Israel in the desert. And it was in this holy tent that God had come to dwell among the people. In that tent, his presence had been right in the middle of their life as they wandered in the desert. So the claim the gospel's making that this logos, this word made flesh, and brings the very presence of God to come to dwell in the midst of the people. A glorious presence, the only begotten from God, full of grace and truth. They, they would have got the claim, even if they perhaps didn't think that was quite possible. Not, not only that, that this only begotten, himself divine, would make the God whom no one has ever seen, known, would communicate his very nature, would also be clear to them, this is what this gospel is claiming. God's presence is among us in this word made flesh. And this word makes flesh, this word made flesh makes God, whom we've never seen, known to us. Remarkably, we haven't yet been told who exactly this word made flesh might be. It's not the John who appears in verse 6, who's only a witness to the word. Indeed, it's not until a little later in that first chapter that we hear the name Jesus on John's lips and that this Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God. And again, the biblically literate reader would perhaps think of the Lamb that the people of Israel had sacrificed on the first Passover in order to save them from the deadly punishment that came upon their pagan enemies. But then the rest of the narrative kicks in and they would learn much more about this Jesus, this word made flesh, in whose life something very profound about God and his word was being said. Again, we might hope that as, as our imaginary Jewish or God-fearing reader went on, they also might be led to meet with God in Jesus in a new and transformative way. So I'm, I'm going to stop there and um, just see if there are any questions or thoughts that you, you, might have, you might have. Perhaps this is all very familiar to you. Jump in, anyone, if you'd like to ask any questions. Um, I'll, I'll say something. Um, just uh, that the idea of the, uh, the word pitching is tent among us. Um, that's because it's not the translation we usually hear, but I can see how it makes sense from, from mm. what you've said. How do we, 
I mean, this is maybe a general question that goes about all biblical exposition, but how do we kind of understand how people would have received it at the time uh, um, compared with the kind of, so when you say the word pitched is 10, we think of a jolly camping holiday, but that yeah. clearly isn't what uh, it exactly means. How do we kind of get what it was uh, what what it was sort of supposed to mean at the time because that's what you've been telling us i think so far a, a little bit about what it would have meant to stoics and jews and, and so well, on and, which helps yes i mean understand um, where you you note there were some careful words like imagine imagine and we might suppose being you know, used by um by me in this so um but the answer to the question is, I mean, first of all, that um, we, there are ancient commentators who um, pick up on, on the language, and they're often a very good guide to what ancient readers would have seen uh, in, in, in texts like this. Now, I am, you know, Jamie's probably much more up on this because I've not actually read a lot of the ancient commentators on John's Gospel um, to see whether they would pick up this, this temple language. But... Um, or the tabernacle language. So yeah, there's an element of, of, of guesswork if you want, but it's pretty well-guided guesswork when the, the author of the gospel chooses this particular word, which is quite unusual. Um, I mean, the word, in, um, the word used in the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament for the tabernacle is skene. And he, um, what John uses is the verb eskenosen, which has got that same word right in the middle. So it's very difficult to resist the conclusion that he is he's gesturing towards this language and this experience. And of course, it, it fits in very much with what he's trying to say. Now, you're right. I mean, we, we, we modern translations do tend to steer us away from this a bit um, in their efforts to help us understand. And I'm not, you know, I'm really not knocking things like the message and things like that who say, well, let's try and get this over to people in the language that they would understand. But as, as I recall the message, it says something like the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, which it sounds really nice, though I'm afraid I've probably watched too much Netflix, but it, it does sound like, you know, there's a sort of drug dealer coming into the hood. You know, um, there's a little sinister overtone on that, but that's just my perverted and strange way of looking at things. But this is a deeply religious word that he's using. It's gesturing towards this this holy presence of God in the tabernacle. And, and that, that is very much, you know, where the theology of this gospel is. This is what it wants to tell us about God, that in Jesus, his very presence is made manifest among us and lives in the midst of us, experiencing our journey. And, you know, that's an amazingly exciting thought, isn't it? That we, we have a God who, who knows our journey, who's actually journeyed with us in, in this strange earthly pilgrimage that we're on and brings the holy presence of God in, into it, into our, our lives, knows our lives. And, and knows, knows the frailty as well. I mean, the thing about the tabernacle, though it became the, the model for the later temple, you know, the floor plan of the tabernacle is basically the floor plan of the later temple. Yeah, it's the fragile flimsy construction <laughs> just as we when we think about ourselves uh, 
pretty fragile and flimsy. Well, I speak for myself. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Ed Marshall has worked out so much that he's a real solid chap, but, you know, people like me, all of us, perhaps. Yeah, does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I don't want to take up any more of our time. No, it's a great question. I mean, as I said, there's uh, a lot of guesswork going on here, but I, I, I hope uh, and, and pray educated guesswork. Okay, any, any, anybody else got any more thoughts? Is it clear what I'm saying? Anyway, that's one of the things I want to say, or is this just scholarly bump? You know, all over your heads, too many long words and complex ideas. No, I hope not. I was just going to say I, that's a really revolutionary thought. I'd never thought about how the gospel draws on things from the Old Testament, I, just in the very language of the words it uses. I think that's quite remarkable. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I've been deeply impressed. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> thank, well, thank you for those words. I mean, it's just the, the more I read the scriptures, I mean, I'm afraid as an Old Testament, I tend to say flippant things about the New Testament, like it's the appendix at the end, which, you know, it's just to wind up my New Testament scholars, but for friends. And actually, the more I read the New Testament, the more I realise that the spectacles the writers had on were the Old Testament. And we're going to come to actually some examples of that a bit later. And, and that's why we have to read the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. One of the many reasons. It's good in its own right good in its own right, um, but without it, it's very difficult to, to understand what the New Testament writers are saying about the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself, of course, lived in the Old Testament, quoted it again and again, saw his mission and, and understood himself in, New, in Old Testament terms. Sorry, you, you got me off on one. I better get on and start talking before I... Finally, yeah, okay. Right, okay, now here I'm gonna start saying things which will probably get tut-tutted from my, and quite rightly too, from my learned New Testament colleague. I wanna talk about this being a missionary gospel. Not, not just one for the church or even for um, a, a sort of group within the church, but one that, I think from the beginning was intended to reach out to others. I want to take seriously the words near the end of John that tell us the book was written, that the reader may believe, and you could actually translate or even come to believe, that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. I'm not convinced by those scholars that I respect them who have argued that John wrote for a rather small community with a rather odd theology, one that was a bit outside the mainstream of the early church. It seems to me, on the contrary, that this gospel, while it certainly could be read with profit by those who were already followers of Jesus, was also one intended to present Jesus so that who he is could be readily grasped, in, in part, at least, by anyone who wanted to find out about him. It's a missionary text seeking to bring people to faith in Jesus. So you may not have found it very helpful, my little imaginative ex exercise about what impact the gospel might have had on those who first read it. 
I, I actually found as a pastor that it was still able to present Jesus to people in our day and age. Sometimes I was asked, perhaps after an alpha course or something like this, by people, which gospel should I read to find out more about Jesus? And I'd say, well, how much time you got? And if they were in a rush, then Mark's the shortest. But if they were prepared to spend a bit more time, then I told them John would probably be the most helpful. For John's witness is very clear indeed to a Jesus who makes God know. Jesus's words and his deeds point in John, always point to the nature of the, the God whom we've not seen, but who in Jesus we can really begin to grasp. So, for example, um, his miracles, and seven of which are described in the first part of the gospel, that's until chapter 12, are called not, uh, as they are in the other gospels, mighty acts, dunamis, but John calls them signs, semea, signs. So whether it's turning water into wine, healing, giving sight to unborn blind, miraculously multiplying loaves and fishes, raising the dead. Jesus is making known the nature of a God who brings joy and laughter. <clears throat> Wine to make glad the heart of man. Uh, these are all very deeply embarrassing texts to Methodists, let me assure you. A God who heals, give light, gives light, multiplies grain in the fields and shoals in the seas and brings life from the dead. That's the God that these deeds are pointing to. In Jesus's ministry, God is at work. And, and that God is the God of the earlier scriptures, that transcendent, life-giving God. Now that the same could of course be said of the mighty deeds of Jesus in the other gospels. They, they too point to God at work among the people bringing in his kingdom of peace and justice, holiness and health. However, John's commitment to witnessing to Jesus as the one who makes God known is shown very clearly by this use of the word signs. If you have eyes to see in the ministry of Jesus, God's intentions to renew and raise up his world through the ministry of Jesus, are clear. Those who hear can come to faith. Although, like all communication, these signs from God can be willfully misunderstood or, or valued for their own sake and, and not for the truth they point to, which is also something that happens in John's Gospel. People follow Jesus because of the signs, not, not because of what they point to. Now, what sort of God is at the centre of this mission? And uh, John's witnesses that these signs point us to the nature of this God. And yes, it's, as I said before, one very much in line with the picture of God's nature shown to us elsewhere in the scriptures. But there's something more, something very profound indeed, I believe, is being said about this word of God that spoke the cosmos into being. 
and has now taken flesh among us. But we, we might perhaps be tempted to think of this creative word that's in Genesis and then is brought again into our attention in the beginning of John. This creative word as one of irresistible command. You know, it's God who's speaking here. And, you know, a word coming from this great boss who only has to say something and it's going to happen. It's really interesting that that's not how the creative word that God speaks in Genesis comes across. That, that word in Genesis is not harsh order. God doesn't say to the light, the firmament, the waters, the earth, the heavenly bodies, the living creatures, the Adam. He doesn't say to them, jump to it, come immediately into existence, or you'll be sorry. He says something rather softer. He speaks a permissive word in creation. Let there be. In, in the original Hebrew of Genesis, it's a, it's a way of using the verb, which is called the yasiv. And it's this let there rather than be. In, in the old Greek translation, which was really the version that most early Christians used, they, they struggle a bit with this, but they, they use something called a passive imperative, which has just about the same effect. It's almost as if the things that God creates, light, heavenly bodies, plants, animals, humans, were, were waiting off stage, yearning to be. And, and God's word gives them permission to emerge and come and stand before him and engage with him. God in Genesis doesn't create so he can, as it were, get bigger and more powerful. He doesn't need more slaves to boss around. Rather, he, he delights in creating a cosmos that, although he upholds it, is also, in powerful ways, independent from him. It has its own being and validity. And, and he wants that. Indeed, he's prepared for the sake of giving creation such freedom to run the risk of creating humans who are able to turn against him, as they do. And so it is in John. This gospel bears witness that the word spoken in Jesus is not about a remote, bossy God who wants us all to jump to attention and obey him instantly. No, the gospel's witness is that Jesus reveals to us a God who wants us to know him, not as a, a tyrant, but as a conversation partner. Now, these conversations are not always easy, not always easy ones. In fact, perhaps they're never easy ones. God in Jesus runs the risk again and again of being misunderstood 
and rejected. But they are potentially, at least, profoundly creative. So one fruitful way of reading the gospel is to see it as a series of conversations between Jesus and others. With partners who come to these conversations with a variety of different attitudes. Perhaps, say, for Nicodemus, curiosity, or in the case of the unnamed Samaritan woman in chapter four, suspicion. On the part of the sick, a yearning for healing. And yet again, downright hostility in the case of many others, or even arrogance, hatred and world-weary cynicism. But Jesus keeps on talking. He can't be silenced. I mean, there's one point in the gospel when he's on trial and he, he replies to the high priest um, who asked him a question uh, and a soldier strikes him. Shut up. How dare you talk to the high priest like that? And, and Jesus isn't having it. He keeps on talking. I have a right to say this. I am going to say this. Indeed, a conversation with Jesus is never a cosy chat. It's always a profoundly challenging experience. People are always changed. Whether they accept what this word shows them of the truth or not. Speaking to Jesus can transform us. But it can also shine light on our hard and sinful hearts. And we may decide that that hard and sinful heart doesn't want to be changed. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And if I might just, say briefly before we pause, let me carry on a little bit about the Old Testament, because whenever we read about these conversations that Jesus is having, we should be on the alert for the echoes of the earlier scriptures. So when Nicodemus, whose very name means victorious people, and all that speaks about a deep concern for his nation and its future, his family, when he comes in the night to visit Jesus, we might think of the prophet Isaiah's song, sung in the land of Judah about the righteous nation that keeps faith. And the verse, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit earnestly seeks you. And realize that what is being hinted at is that this Nicodemus is a man who longs for a new and better way for himself and his people. Or here I'm, now I'm trespassing a bit on Sam's territory, I hope he'll forgive me. When, when Jesus meets a rather dodgy foreign woman by a well, we might recall the times when in the Old Testament, Israelite men met foreign women by wells. In Genesis and Exodus, Abraham's servant and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and his wife-to-be Zipporah. 
And in those meetings at the well, marriage is in the air. Well, this Samaritan woman has been married many times already and Jesus doesn't want her for her body. No, what he longs to offer her is the love, a covenant love, which will transform and redeem her difficult life. And through that transforming love, bring fruitful life to her people. So these conversations in John's gospel are themselves in conversation with the great themes of the earlier scriptures, like what is Israel's true purpose? What does it mean to be in fruitful, covenantal relationship with others and with God? Can we truly leave behind the old dead ways and walk in new paths that lead to life? These are the important life-changing questions that are raised in these conversations when people encounter this word who was in the beginning with God, is from God, is God. Right, well, I've thrown a few things at you there. Um, perhaps you might like to um, come back at me. Um, Peter, where's the verse in Isaiah about um, logging in the night? Uh, it's uh, Isaiah 29, verse 6. <clears throat> Um, one of Isaiah's songs about Israel or Judah. Mm. And I'm, I, I'm down to preach on that passage, aren't I, uh, Sam? So I've been thinking a bit about it, but. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a, that visit of Jesus, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus is, you know, says such a lot to say to us, I think, about, um, you know, how people can get trapped in really difficult and unhelpful political and social ways of being. There's only hints there, perhaps I'm building a bit too much on it, but I, I think uh, this, is, this is why his, his offer in that passage of the, the, the you know, total rebirth, new start, is so profound. Yeah. It was my reading today, um, one of my Bible readings um, today was Lazarus. And um, I was just really struck again by, by how Jesus shows, you know, he's, he's not afraid to show intense emotion. You know, it no. says, you know, Jesus <laughs> wept. And he wept at the circumstances that he found. And there's, you know, it raises lots of questions to me about what he's weeping about, you know, and what he's seeing. But it's just clear of that, that, um, that emotional connection that Jesus uh, has with, with each one of us and just how he's profoundly moved by, um, by the circumstances he finds. I mean, that, for instance, for the Stoics would have been really difficult. Um, you know, the Stoicism is a very... Uh, you know, very pervasive in, in the, the this in this period, because the no, the notion that was very central to Stoicism: we can't control much, but we can control ourselves. 
You know, we can we can be in control of our emotions. You know, all this stuff can mean nothing to us because we can just step aside and control ourselves. And indeed, in in some ways, the Jesus in in John's Gospel is is really quite um, you know he's he's pretty controlled in many ways. Um, I mean, you, you don't have in John's Gospel, for instance, the dreadful cry on the cross that you have in Mark. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, it's, it's you know, Jesus says, it, it is finished, what is accomplished, how do you translate that? Um, and even, even in front of Pilate and uh, on trial, he's, he seems pretty much in control of that conversation. You know, he, he, he puts Pilate in his place, really. Um, so that, that, but against that is this real sense of, of his tears, of his compassion for others. I mean, what breaks Jesus is not his own plight, but that of others. I know um, my dear friend and colleague, Stephen Finnemore, the principal of the Baptist College, used to get very angry at that, um, that um, hymn, which, um, which says, you know, he had no tears for his own griefs, but he wept blood, he, he wept blood drops for mine. Do you know that hymn? Yeah. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, that one. It has the line in it, he had no tears for his own grief, but he wept blood, blood drops for mine. And Steve said, oh, that's, that's like saying that Jesus wasn't really, you know, a human being. He, he didn't care about himself. And surely Jesus must have been um, frightened for himself. And I think there's evidence even in John's gospel that he, he is, um, you know, in, 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 in parts. But nevertheless, the real tears come when he's moved by the death uh, of a friend. Anything else? Any other questions? No? Okay. So. Well, I'm just going to say a, 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 few, a few funny concluding words about, um, you know, who might have written such a gospel. Um, and here I'm, I'm certainly departing, I've got to say to you, from the, what I... I from what I've read is very much what uh, most scholars seem to think because if for instance you're thinking about how when the gospel was written um, many scholars would want to date John late in the first century and sometimes even straying into the early second century but I, I do note that um, you know sometimes the evidence offered for such dating is rather weak and even justified by arguments which are marked a little by circularity. Um, for instance, um, how do we know that John's late? Well, you know, the jargon is because his Christology is so high. Uh, that is jargon for Jesus being identified clearly in the gospel with the one creator God. You see, Jesus is called in the gospel. This is the only gospel, in fact, and perhaps the only bit in the, in the um, entire New Testament, where without any doubt, unambiguously, Jesus is called God. Um, you'll recall the incident at the end of the gospel where um, it, the 
disciple Thomas isn't present when the risen Lord appears to the disciples. And when he's told that Jesus has risen, has appeared to the disciples, he is very skeptical, to say the least. And so, unless I touch him, I put my hands in the wounds that he bears, then I won't believe. And then, of course, um, the next thing we hear is that Jesus does appear when Thomas is present, which um, is a little troubling and says to Thomas, come on then, you wanted to, you can check, check out, I really am alive. Um, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So this is called high Christology, when you actually, Jesus is unambiguously um, described in the gospel as God. And, and therefore it's thought it must be late because this sort of Christology took time to develop, they think. But then you also get the comment, well, why is John's Christology high? Well, because he's writing so late. So you see, there's a sort of circularity going on here. And against this, I, I do note that John's often well informed about historical details of life in early first century Judea, Galilee, in that specific period. Uh, details, for instance, about the circumstances of Jesus' arrest and execution, um, his remarks about the stone vessels for purification in John chapter 2 are very culture specific. And he knows that the soldiers who arrested Jesus were led by a Roman officer. It's the only gospel who tells us this, that with the uh, arresting party was a centurion. He uses the technical word for a Roman centurion. And this is highly probable historically, as the Romans would not have wanted such a high profile arrest to have been conducted without their close supervision. So I'm minded to suggest that um, actually the Gospels a lot later, probably before AD 70, um, in part, though maybe the bit, the last chapter may be added by a disciple because it seems to know about the, um, the death of Peter and, and the persecution under Nero. And that's quite late in the uh, AD 60s. So... Still, um, all in all, the, the traditional theory, the vast bulk of the gospel was written by a, a John, who we might identify with the beloved disciple, who appears so frequently in its text, has much to recommend it. Uh, but which John? It, I mean, the, the Hebrew form of John, Yochanan, was the second most common name for men in first century Judaism. So there are a lot of Johns around. Well, um, it could have been... John, who the Synoptic Gospels say was the brother of James, or as others have argued, a, a character called John the Elder, who was believed to have led the Christian community in Ephesus late in the first century. And um, in favor of that last identification, so it's, it is the, the Jerusalem focus of the gospel. Okay, yeah, many of the early stories in John are set in Galilee, but the action centers far more around the holy city than it does in the synoptics. So it would seem odd if the author were John, brother of James, a fisherman from Galilee. Galilee. There's no certain way of confirming these things, but um, I, as I said, I do think that the gospel is written quite early um, and probably by somebody who would have known Jesus uh, as an eyewitness. The, the objection the gospel may have drawn at points on 
part of the way the synoptics tell the tradition, tell the story, is not fatal because those gospels may have been circulating in draft form in a very early date in the life of the church. Um, I've got a few more things to say, but I see we're running out of time. Um, so you can catch us if you're interested in the in the notes. But I'm just going to come back again that, to conclude that John's gospel is a celebration of how God shares with us what we need to know for our healing and redemption and that of the whole world. And that sharing is through the life and saving death of Jesus of Nazareth, God's word in human flesh. That's primarily how John sees this sharing um, is done through the life of Jesus Christ as he witnesses to it. But it also is continued through the witness of the Holy Spirit who teaches the faithful all things, brings to their remembrance all that Jesus has said. But at the heart of the gospel is this huge, great truth that this God who made the universe and made us, who our, our minds can't really grasp, who is beyond us in so many ways, mysteriously other, greater than we can imagine, that yearns to communicate himself to us. He wants to make himself known, and he has done through his son. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Okay, any, uh, any final questions? Hi, Peter. I guess I always imagined that the Gospel of John and 123 John and Revelation were written by the same people, same person. Is that just one of those, there are always going to be people who will um, possibly dispute that? Or is that just a widespread view or will we never know the answer and it's okay to think that the same John wrote the, those three, those five books? All, all of those. <laughs> I think. I mean, I, I, I'm not. A, I'm not an expert on, on on this, but certainly there is a category, the Johannine literature, as they call it. Um, I'm, I mean, Jamie's probably the, the, the guy who really give a definitive answer there. So I, I speak very much under correction, and I, I've already probably gone way off, way way off beam by saying that John is early and um, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but that what you can say is certainly there are great affinities in in style and thought and theology between the letters and John's gospel. You know, what our, what our eyes have seen, what our ears have heard, our hands have touched, says the letter, as if I'm you know, paraphrasing and misquoting a bit, but you know, there's that sense in John's letter. You know, we, we, we saw this. 
and that's very similar to the atmosphere of the of the gospel. Yeah. And the language is, has, has got clear affinities. So if it's not the same person, it's certainly somebody very much from the same sort of community and thought world. But uh, I'm impressed, as I said, that um, and once again, I'm, I think I'm an intention with some other scholars that um, people really know what they're talking about, that you know, I don't think John is just writing for this odd little Johannine community who are a little bit off-ball, which is what often people say. Just because somebody's got some of the style doesn't mean that every, you know they are writing for a particular little little group. Um, I'm I'm impressed by the the way in many ways that the gospel is very accessible to people who are outside even the the. Um, the, the Jewish and Christian thought world of the time, uh, my imagined Stoic would have made quite a bit out of it. If he'd got his head round it or her head round it, wouldn't have found it comfortable reading, would have scratched their heads, lots of point, but they'd have got it. Yeah, they'd have got the central claims being made, I think. So this literature is, it's, it's the, 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 the book of Revelation, the apocalypse is, is another, question as well. I mean, the, the writer calls himself John, but um, there, there are quite a few differences there, I think, in the, the way things are done. But uh, particularly in the, in the uh, things like, um, I mean, there, but then there are similarities. I mean, a lot of temple theology, for instance, in, in Revelation as there is in John. Not sure that helps. Read the commentaries. People really know what they're talking about. I think the real question is, how much does it matter anyway? Um, does what matter? Was, who, who was that? Me, sorry, it's Paul. Oh, hello, Paul. Yeah, what does it matter? Yeah, um, do, you don't think it matters then that we might have a God who makes himself known? No, no. How much does it matter whether it's the same author? Oh, sorry. Sorry. Forgive me. Yeah. Yeah, um, that that's a, that is a very good question. Sorry, I don't mean to rubbish that at all. Um, no, in in, in a fundamental, in a very powerful sense, we we know so little about the authors of any of these texts, um, and we we can sort of deduce who they might have been from the texts, which is a strange way of proceeding because, after all, these are not autobiographical texts, and even if they were, in in autobiographies, people present themselves. Um, they don't, they're not, so yeah, you're right, Paul, it, 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 in, a, in fundamental ways, it doesn't matter, except if we can establish links between the sort of deep thinking of um, different writers, but we can probably do that anyway without knowing their personal circumstances. I do think it's important, I mean, that the, the orthodoxy, when I began to, to study scripture, you know, in those days when dinosaurs roamed the earth, was that all the gospels were written really late. I mean, Professor Nyman taught me, thought they, 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 the gospels knew almost nothing about the historical Jesus, for instance. What, what they were all about was the early church. He thought they were all written, written really late in the first century or the beginning of the second century. Now that, that is no longer, I don't think, uh, what most biblical scholars think. Um, 
there is, I think, much more willingness to believe that the Gospels contain eyewitness um, evidence on historical Jesus, and that they're not they're not about the early church's life; they're about his life, uh, which is comforting for people like me, at least, who have always thought that actually, uh, and indeed would would worry about the. Um, reliability of the Gospels if, if they were so late. And as I said, I mean, once again, Jamie will give a much more informed opinion than me, but I, I think it's, it's probably true that the, the balance of the evidence has shifted towards much earlier dating of the Gospels now. Wonderful. Any, fi any final questions from anyone? Yeah. There's some chats. Let's see if there are any questions, but I, I don't want to keep you too long. You've got to get back to Netflix. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> Great. Yeah. So, yeah, so just got a few comments. Um, Comments in the chat. It's easy. They're all written by John. There you go. They're all written by A. John. <laughs> yeah. A. John. Yeah. Um, great. It was the second most popular name. James was the most popular and Jesus was the third. So there you go. <laughs> great. Well, that set us up really well for um, for our series, um, Peter. So thank you. We're really looking forward to, um, you to oh, working our way through John's gospel. I just really encourage everyone um, here listening just to... to um, take the opportunity um, in the lead up to Easter just to immerse yourself in in John's gospel and to follow through with us in this series as we look at so many different characters um, and their encounter with Jesus. So I'm up first this week looking at the uh, the Samaritan uh, woman at the well and uh, got some got some useful notes there from Peter so I'll, I'll be using those on Sunday and I think uh, the follow-up is actually um, we're going backwards a little bit looking at Nicodemus in the chapter before uh, the week oh, after that with Peter so um, I thought it was me this week if, if we can tag team in that uh, that Peter um, I wonder if you pray for us Peter as we as we close great and, and wonderful God. We are astonished when we reflect on how much you love us and how much you love the world. And you were prepared to, to give um, your only son. We tremble, Lord, when we consider what that means about you and your nature We pray, Lord, that you will help us um, in making your, your love and your compassion known by word and by deed in this world in which you love so much. In, in sea mills and in wherever we live, in this city, in this nation, and indeed to the ends of the earth. We are so frail and fragile, and yet you are content 
to come into our lives and dwell with us. Bring your holy presence. So Lord, um, as we ponder your word and lead up to Easter and remember again, in this dark and confused time when so many people are finding life a real struggle, mentally and physically, help us to know uh, the joy of your rising to remember that um, it comes from a death, from a life freely offered. And these things we dare to pray in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Peter. And, uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, I'm sure you'll join me in, uh, in thanking Peter and uh, yeah, have a good rest of your evening, Netflix or otherwise. Okay. Thank you. It's great. I'll send you those notes, Sam. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll make sure the notes are available with the, with the recording on the website. So uh, do check that out in, uh, in due course. Thank you for your question. It's really helpful. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Is everyone?